welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the American History and Civics Podcast. We have finished our deep dive into the text of the Declaration of Independence and now are exploring the 56 men who signed the document. This is part five and the last part of the signers. As we complete our exploration of the lives of these fascinating men, they will talk to us directly. Each man addresses us not in 1776, but after they have ascended to paradise. Naturally, their personalities, spectral as they may be, are still compelling to us today. Let's face it, most people can only name a few of the courageous, brave men who signed the Declaration. Some even posit that the founders were phonies just trying to enrich themselves or fighting to preserve a crooked system of life. This is a cynical, twisted distortion of history. Many of the signers of the Declaration risked their lives. Some narrowly escaped death. Others had their fortunes ruined, but they all maintained their sacred honor. We are rectifying this lack of historical knowledge. I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. So far, we have covered the first 46 signers as they appear on the engrossed version of the Declaration of Independence, which was signed by the Continental Congress on August 2nd of 1776. Remember, we are going in the order of the signatures with John Hancock on top and the remaining by column, going from the far left column and slowly moving over to the far right column. And a cautionary note for all these episodes involving these mini biographies of the signers. The historical sources often do not agree where there seems to be a prevailing view, or where there is a disagreement, but I possess a seriously grounded, educated opinion, the spirits relate the prevailing view or my educated opinion. Yet there is an important unsolved mystery. That particular spirit may comment that you will have to wait until you meet him in the great beyond. Now, let's finish the signers. I am most pleased and humbled to introduce John Adams. I am most pleased to make your acquaintance. My soul was sprung upon this magnificent earth on October 19, 1735. I was born at Quincy, what was then Braintree, in Massachusetts. My father's great-grandfather was Henry Adams, who left England to find religious freedom. At the time, the English regime under Charles I and Archbishop Laud were prosecuting dissenters. Likewise, my mother's family fled the seat of the empire and the Mayflower to avoid religious persecution and live out their religious lives and beliefs unhindered in the New World. Recognizing that I had some talent for reading and study, my father had me tutored under Mr. Marsh in Braintree. I attended Harvard College, graduating in 1755. For a while, I considered entering the ministry, but decided I was better suited to the law. I began my legal studies under Mr. Samuel Putnam, and later with Jeremy Gridley, then the Attorney General of the Colony. Gridley had a large law library, and I was free to use it at will. An enormous advantage before public libraries, or, or what do you call it? Mr. Google. I was admitted to the bar in 1758 and opened a practice in Braintree. Now, I must admit that it was often viewed as brilliant, but also vain, and at times ill-tempered hypocritical, and too prideful for my britches. But I worked hard. Unlike my southern brethren, I actually tilled the soil of my farm. I paid my bills, again, not in perpetual debt like the planter class. Benjamin Rush characterized me as follows. He saw the whole of a subject at a single glance, and by happy union 
of the powers of reasoning and persuasion often succeeded in carrying measures which were at first sight of an unpopular nature. That's a bit of a long-winded way of saying, I got to the chase and could radically change people's minds. I was well aware of my own strengths and my weaknesses. I was no fool. I knew some people disliked my disposition. Sensing this at critical times, I was smart enough to step aside. Jefferson wrote the declaration because I insisted. Richard Henry Lee made the resolution for independency because he was the right man, not me. I rallied Congress to support George Washington because we needed him. In 1765, I published my essay on the canon and feudal law, much of which was directed at explaining how America was settled by those seeking freedom and the need for colonists to know and defend our rights and privileges. Some think that it is a bit ponderous, and others claim it is brilliant. I am confident it is both. Take a quick listen to a few passages. Let the pulpit resound with the doctrines and sentiments of religious liberty. Let us hear the danger of thraldom to our consciousness. From ignorance, extreme poverty, and dependence, in short, from civil and political slavery. Let us see delineated before us the true map of man. Let us hear the dignity of his nature and the noble rank he holds among the works of God. That consenting to slavery is a sacrilegious breach of trust, as offensive in the sight of God as it is derogatory from our one honor or interest or happiness. And that God Almighty has promulgated from heaven liberty, peace, and goodwill to man. Let the bar proclaim the laws, the rights, the generous plan of power delivered from remote antiquity. Inform the world of the mighty struggles and numberless sacrifices made by our ancestors in the defense of freedom. Let it be known that British liberties are not the grants of princes or parliaments, but original rights, conditions of original contracts, co-equal with prerogative and co with government. That many of our rights are inherent and essential, agreed on as maxims and established as preliminaries even before a parliament existed. Let them search for the foundation of British laws and government in the frame of human nature, in the constitution of the intellectual and moral world. There let us that truth, liberty, justice, and benevolence are its everlasting basis, and if these could be removed, the superstructure is overthrown, of course. At an early age, I was captivated by politics and deeply considered the future destiny of our colonies. When the Stamp Act was enacted, I was among several influential Bostonians who demanded the elimination of its requirement that legal documents must be on stamped paper. I wrote a protest for Braintree, and it was adopted by several other towns. I moved to Boston in 1766. That same year, I married Abigail Smith, the daughter of a clergyman from Braintree. In Boston, I started organizing opposition to British oppression with leading patriots John Hancock, James Otis, Joseph Warren, and others. Then Governor Bernard tried to bribe me into silence by offering me several official posts that would have offered me fame and fortune. I refused to stain my honor. In 1768, John Hancock was charged with smuggling. I defended him and became widely popular throughout Massachusetts. As an ardent patriot, 
my career took an interesting turn in 1770. What I refer to, of course, is the Boston Massacre. The soldiers accused of murder were put on trial. No one else would take the case. I saw it as my duty to provide the robust defense they were entitled to under the law. In fact, I proved to the world that even the hated British soldiers who slayed our citizens would be treated fairly in our system of justice. The rule of law must prevail. I was able to obtain outright acquittals for most of the soldiers and lesser charges for the remainder. Instead of becoming a pariah in the wake of my service to my country, that very year I was elected to the colony's General Assembly. See, back then, principled action was applauded, not scorned upon, as is so often the case in your day and age. Soon, the General Assembly chose me to serve on the Governor's Executive Council, and Governor Hutchinson rejected me, as did his successor, Governor Gage. Just as well. In 1774, I was elected to the First Continental Congress. I served on its most important committees, and I had a hand in drafting its most important resolutions. When the time came to choose a commander-in-chief for our Continental Forces, I determined to fix that responsibility not in a man from my home colony, but a Virginian, George Washington. He was not an obvious choice, as you might think, with hundreds of years of hindsight. There were several generals on the continent who outranked him. He was from Virginia, far from the center of agitation, and my home of Massachusetts. John Hancock, although not a military man, was the president of the Second Continental Congress and fancied himself as the leading contender. But I could perceive Washington's character, his spirit, his will, I knew he was the man to unite the colonies and see the awful responsibility through. I worked with my second cousin, Samuel Adams, on a quiet campaign to secure the votes. When I knew we had our majority, on June 15, 1775, I moved that George Washington be our commander-in-chief. My cousin seconded the nomination, and the next day the Congress unanimously approved it. Washington had no part in this plan. That he desired it was obvious but he lifted not a finger to make it happen. No, that was me. In addition to military affairs, I was a leading voice in the political realm as well. On May 6, 1776, I moved that the colonies begin to form new governments, revolutionary ones, independent of the kingdom. On May 10th, it was approved as follows, that it be recommended to all the colonies which had not already established governments suited to the exigencies of their case to adopt such governments as would, in the opinion of the representatives of the people, best conduce to the happiness and safety of their constituents in particular and Americans in general. Richard Henry Lee's resolution for independence was first proposed on June 7, 1776, but it was tabled on June 10th, and on that day we appointed a committee to prepare a declaration of independence to explain why we declared independence. That is, if we did so. Of course, I served on that committee, along with Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Roger Sherman, and Robert Livingston. When the resolution of independence was brought back for a robust debate, I eventually made an argument so compelling that it changed many votes and procured unanimous approval of the resolution. Thomas Jefferson remarked, John Adams was our colossus on the floor. Not graceful, not elegant, not always fluent with his public addresses, he came yet out with a power, both of thought and of expression, that moved us from our seats. Yes, when I made that speech, my fellow delegates stood up in awe. Fellow signer Richard Stockton dubbed me the Atlas of Independence, and the term stuck.
We approved independence on July 2nd, the day after I wrote to my beloved Abigail. The second day of July 1776 will be the most memorable epoca in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade and shows and games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. You would think me transported with enthusiasm, but I am not. I am well aware of the toil and blood and treasure that it will cost us to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom, I can see the rays of ravishing light and glory. I can see that the end is more than worth all the means, and that posterity will triumph in that day's transaction, even though we should rue it, which I trust in God, we shall not. Of course, we continue to celebrate our independence with illuminations in the sky. You call them fireworks. On July 4th, not the 2nd, as I predicted. And there is no solemnization. This is, in fact, a major reason why your Judge Warren and his daughter Leah embarked on creating Patriot Week, to which you owe my commentary today. In any event, after the resolution passed, we debated the Declaration. I forced Jefferson to write the first draft, and Benjamin Franklin and I made some changes. When it came to the floor, Jefferson sat and said not a word in its defense. I, on the other hand, defended every word. Jefferson remarked, John Adams was the pillar of its support on the floor of Congress, its ablest advocate and defender against the multifarious assaults which were made against it. Of course, I voted for independence and the declaration and signed it on August 2nd. While in Congress, I unsuccessfully served as a peace minister to Britain, and in 1776 through 1777, I served on 90 different committees and chaired 25 of them. I served as commissioner to France in 1778 to 1779. Upon my return, I served in the Massachusetts Constitutional Convention and pretty much drafted it. It is still in effect to this day. That makes it the oldest written constitution still in effect in the entire world. I am proud to let you know that the Supreme Court of my state used the constitution that I wrote to abolish slavery. Praise be to God. In 1780, I was appointed to the Peace Commission to negotiate the terms for ending the American Revolution and settled in France to explore those possibilities. Unfortunately, they did not get going for a while, so in June 1780, I went to Holland to negotiate desperately needed loans. Soon, however, I was recalled to France and we began negotiating peace terms in earnest. Congress wanted me to subordinate our negotiations to our French ally, but I was too independent-minded for that. I went back to Holland and obtained the loans after becoming very popular there, and Holland soon entered into treaties with us and recognized the United States of America as a free and sovereign nation. This state of affairs reignited our peace negotiations with England, and I again refused to subordinate our interests to the French. We finally completed our negotiations for peace in 1783 with the consummation of the Treaty of Paris. I spent time in Highland in 1784 and was appointed ambassador to the English Empire in 1785. I was the first American diplomat to meet the king, and despite our enmity for some many years, the audience was quite wondrous. Wishing to return home after nearly a decade of overseas diplomatic service, my resignation was accepted and I returned to my beloved country. True, 
I missed the Constitution and Convention, but my service to my country in that period can hardly be more important. I strongly supported the Constitution upon my return. I was elected our first vice president under George Washington in 1788. Unlike most of my successors, I took seriously my position as president of the Senate and presided over it during my term's service. After Washington retired after two years, I sought the presidency. Of course, Washington had a Federalist disposition, but was not a member of any political party. When he stepped down, America experienced its first meaningful political campaign. It was ugly, fought by proxies with vicious language and pamphlets and otherwise. I bested my old friend and now political rival Thomas Jefferson for president. 71 electoral votes to 68. My presidency was a very difficult one. Jefferson, who became my vice president, was also my ardent enemy. I was astounded by the vile rage that spewed in the press, and I signed the Alien and Sedition Acts, which, among other things, allowed for the jailing of political critics of my administration. The country was highly divided, and my administration jailed many of the most vile slanderers. Upon reflection in paradise, I must admit, most think these acts violated the First Amendment's protection of free speech and press. I also imposed new taxes to raise an army in case war broke out with France. Then we had the infamous XYZ affair, in which French agents tried to bribe American officials to begin peace talks. This completely backfired and we ended up in a quasi-war with France, fought mostly on the high seas. I hated war and wanted to avoid it, but England and France were antagonizing us on the open seas and in many other ways. I kept us out of war at a time when going to war against France would have been very, very popular. and doing so, I alienated many of my natural political allies. Most historians, and they were right, of course, believe if I had declared war against France, I could have been re-elected. But I did what was right for the country and chose peace, not me. Being president was not all that I had envisioned. Jefferson, meanwhile, worked relentlessly to undermine my presidency and I was defeated in my bid for re-election in 1800. I retired to my estate at Quincy and was rarely heard from publicly again. Yes, I did vote as a presidential elector in 1820, and when I was 85, I attended the Massachusetts Convention convened to revise my Constitution. Beginning in 1812, Jefferson and I began a new courtship of sorts, and we wrote long, tender letters covering many subjects. On July 4th, 1826, I was unable to rise out of bed. I fell ill, and as I lay dying, I uttered, Jefferson still lives. Jefferson, always trying to prove me wrong, had actually met his maker a few hours before. My last words, however, are immortal and true so far. I exclaimed, Independence forever! My spirit departed at 4 p.m. In case you missed the great mystery, Jefferson and I both passed over to the great eternal 50 years to the day of July 4th. My beloved wife Abigail predeceased me in 1818. We had been married 52 years. She was a true partner, my best friend, closest advisor, and amazing mother. She was an intellectual and firebrand in her own right. In another age, she could have been president. My son John Quincy Adams had an amazing diplomatic and political career, including as congressman, secretary of state, and as a one-term president. In fact, he was president when I passed on to the great beyond. That was so fitting. My grandson, Charles Francis, great-grandsons, John Quincy II, Charles Francis Jr., Henry Brooks, and my great-great-great-grandson, 
Charles Francis III and great-great-great-great-great-grandson Charles Francis IV substantially contributed to the country through politics, diplomacy, literature, history, military, business, and other public service. As the leading patriot to independence, I committed treason. I risked my life and my modest property. I always fought for liberty and maintained my sacred honor. I have the privilege of introducing to you Robert Treat Payne. Many thanks, President John Adams. In fact, I am Robert Treat Payne, and I am most pleased to make your acquaintance. I was born in Boston in 1731. My mother was the daughter of a minister and the great-granddaughter of Connecticut Governor Treat. My father was a pastor who later went into business. Some of my other ancestors included an acting president of Harvard and a signer of the Mayflower Compact. I was tutored by Mr. Lovell, who also tutored President Adams and John Hancock. I began attending Harvard when I was fourteen, but my father's ill health and other circumstances required that I should support my family. Accordingly, I taught school children. For a spot of time I studied theology, and even served as a chaplain for His Majesty's troops in the field in 1755 during the French and Indian War, but I eventually determined that the law was more in alignment with my aptitude. Before turning to the law, I journeyed through the North and South Carolinas, England, Spain, and even Greenland. I learned at the hand of Mr. Pratt, who later became Chief Justice of New York. I was admitted to the bar in 1757 and opened a law practice in Taunton, Massachusetts in 1761. I was drawn into the political controversy between us humble men of Massachusetts and the Empire. In fact, I strongly opposed Mr. Timothy Ruggles, the man who headed up the Stamp Act Congress in 1765, but who refused to support all the necessary measures of resistance, and that rascal eventually became a strong loyalist. And when Massachusetts Governor Bernard dissolved the government for no cause in 1768, I was elected as a delegate of convention called by the leading lights of Boston. Ironically, I faced off against John Adams in the trial of the soldiers accused in the Boston Massacre. I worked on behalf of the prosecution, and although Adams bested me, both of our reputations prospered. A few years later, in 1773, I served as the chairman of the Committee of Vigilance in Taunton, and that same year I was elected a delegate to the General Assembly of Massachusetts and strongly supported our rights and privileges. In fact, I was appointed as one of the commissioners charged with impeaching Chief Justice Oliver. Now, you must understand, he accepted pay from the Crown as opposed to the colonial legislature, and that made him a puppet of the empire. He was a traitor to our liberties and justice. In 1774, I was elected to the First Continental Congress and was elected to the Second Continental Congress in 1775. Now, I did decline to serve on the Massachusetts Supreme Court and instead chose to focus my energies in Congress. And one peculiarly important duty I was assigned was to direct the production of salt peter, which 
is a key component of gunpowder, of course. Uh, Science was not so perfected as it is in your age, and we needed to gather the best thinking to understand how to best manufacture the critical element so essential to defending our liberties. And, after soliciting such advice, we were able to ensure the production of saltpetre, thereby enabling our fighting men to be armed not just with their passion, but with gunpowder. I was not quite the ardent advocate for independence as my fellow Massachusetts delegates, and that causes no small measure of consternation between me, Samuel Adams, and John Hancock. Still, I supported Richard Henry Lee's Resolution of Independence and the Declaration of Independence, and I signed that declaration on August 2nd. I served in Congress, as well as several state offices, in 1777 and 1778. In 1777, I served as the Speaker of the Massachusetts House, and I assisted John Adams in drafting the Massachusetts Constitution in 1780, and I was appointed our first Attorney General under the new state constitution. And in 1790, I resigned that post as Governor Hancock appointed me to sit on the Massachusetts Supreme Court. And in 1804, I retired from the bench. I was known to have a sharp mind with a lively imagination and acute intelligence. I usually did not have any novel ideas, but I was a great critic. I could often tear apart flawed proposals, earning me the moniker, the Objection Maker. I fervently believed in the Gospel and the Bible. I did not suffer fools, and some called me harsh and severe when I was Attorney General. And in fact, I was to those who deserved it. But to those who repented, they often received my mercy. My reputation as a judge was one of perfect impartiality and justice. And when I charged grand juries, I implored them to faithfully execute the laws, support the schools, and follow strict morality. I was a founder of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1780, which, based in Boston, was dedicated to furthering academic and scientific progress. I was an active member until my dying day. And I did then ascend to the pearly gates on May 11th, 1814, at the age of 84. Or was it May 12th? Well, you will just have to ask me that when we meet in Nirvana. My beloved wife and I had a bit of an inauspicious start. You see, she was of child before we were married. But, as a man of honour, I rectified that concern through marriage— and we eventually had a total of eight offspring. My son, Robert Treat Payne, was a famed poet, but I did not approve of that profession. <laughs> and my great-grandson, Robert Treat Payne, was a well-known businessman and philanthropist. Now, like Adams, I placed everything at risk when I approved the declaration, and my sacred honour required it. And now I am humbled to present to you Elbridge Gary. Many thanks, Mr. Robert Treat Payne, and so pleased to meet you, I am Elbridge Gary. I came upon this earth on July 17, 1744, at Marblehead, Massachusetts. 
I was the third of twelve children. My father had emigrated to America about fourteen years earlier, that being 1730. He was a successful merchant, a cod exporter, and well-respected man of true character. Trade flowed in my blood, as my mother's father was also the daughter of a Boston merchant. I attended Harvard, graduated in 1762, and planned to engage in medicine. But instead, I assisted my father in his commercial affairs and discovered I truly enjoyed it. Within a few years, I was rich. In 1772, I was elected to the Massachusetts legislature, and the next year became an original member of the Massachusetts Standing Committee of Correspondence. I was a strong supporter of measures aimed at resisting British tyranny. A consistent theme throughout my public service was a true fear of military oppression and executive tyranny. After Governor Gage dissolved our Legislative Assembly, we reconstituted ourselves as a Provincial Congress, and I served there from the very beginning. I was a member on a committee of 14 that produced a polemic explaining by what authority the Provincial Congress was constituted and how Governor Gage's actions were an affront to liberty. Our report resulted in a strong and coherent organization of the new legislature. I also served with Samuel Adams and John Hancock on the Council of Safety, which was arming the colony for war, and chaired the Committee of Supply, which raised troops and supervised military logistics. When British troops marched to Lexington and Concord, in part to arrest John Hancock and Samuel Adams, I played a vital part. I spied the columns of troops and sent an express rider to warn Hancock and Adams that the Redcoats were on the march. That night, I was lodging with another member of Congress in Monotomy, then part of Cambridge, which was on the road to Lexington. We awoke to the marching men and soon realized they intended to capture us. We slipped out moments before the British forced their way in and searched the entire cottage. Huzzah! After the fateful events of Lexington and Concord, Congress established a committee to procure military supplies, and I was appointed its chair. Robert Treat Payne just mentioned this committee to you and his vital contribution to it. I worked to procure existing supplies of gunpowder and even paid for some of them out of my own pocket. Unfortunately, I was not able to provide all the necessary receipts of my expenditures and therefore took quite a financial loss at the end of the war. Before the Battle of Bunker Hill erupted, I was the roommate, actually bedmate, of Son of Liberty Dr. Joseph Warren, who was also the president of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. The morning of June 17th, Dr. Warren awoke and left me with these parting words, Dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. That is, it is sweet and fitting to die for one's country. I went to the Provincial Congress and Dr. Warren to Bunker Hill, where he gave his life for our liberty.
In early 1775, I proposed, and the Provincial Congress adopted, a measure to encourage the arming of vessels and the capture of English ships. This was vital not only as a war measure, but it showed that we were in rebellion. After all, it was an act of sovereignty. Along with this came an admiralty court, and the Provincial Congress appointed me to serve on that bench, but I declined thinking my other responsibilities more important. In fact, I was elected to the Second Continental Congress and took that seat on February 7, 1776. I pretty much served straight on until September 1785. I strongly supported Richard Henry Lee's Resolution for Independence and the Declaration of Independence and signed it not on August 2nd, but later that fall. I had originally authorized Samuel and John Adams to sign it for me, but I was able to place my John Hancock on it directly. My duties were broad and wide-ranging in scope, involving medical, military, and financial affairs. I demanded higher pay and equipment for our soldiers, gaining the moniker, Soldier's friend, but was no fan of soldier's pension. I must admit, on occasion, I used inside information to benefit my business, as it also provided troops military supplies. On the other hand, I condemned profiteering and never was paid more than the published fair price schedule. A heated dispute erupted between me and other members of Congress regarding the fair price schedule. I thought the position being taken by others was grossly unfair, and I stormed out of Congress, and although I technically was a member, I did not return for three years. I came back in 1783, but I regret that it was not the most productive time in my career. In 1785, I retired. My finances were set, and I retired from business too, but was elected to the Massachusetts State Legislature. And not two years later, I was elected to the Constitutional Convention. I opposed the draft Constitution and refused to sign it. Why? Well, I wrote a letter to my dear people of Massachusetts a portion I will recite here. My principal objections to the plan are that there is no adequate provision for a representation of the people, that they have no security for the right of election, that some powers of the legislature are ambiguous and others indefinite and dangerous, that the executive is blended with and will have an undue influence over the legislature that the judicial power will be oppressive, that the treaties of the highest importance may be formed by the President with the advice of two-thirds of a quorum of the Senate, that the system is without the security of a Bill of Rights. These are objections which are not local, but apply equally to all the states. Some of my contemporaries complained on the floor of the Congress and during the Constitutional Convention, I raised inconsistent objections, took too much notice on how proposals might personally affect me and my business, 
was often ambivalent and changed positions and liked to object to anything I did not propose. They complained that I supported some items and then seemed to take positions opposite of those convictions. They just didn't understand my thinking. Besides, how many politicians are consistent over many years of service? Despite my opposition, the Constitution was narrowly ratified in Massachusetts and eventually the entire country. And despite my opposition, I was elected to the Federal House of Representatives during its first term. Having been ratified, I fully embraced the Constitution and was committed to its success. I retired after serving two terms. As you heard earlier from President Adams, in his term as president, there was a quasi-war between us and our former French allies. He appointed me, John Marshall, and General Pinckney to negotiate a peaceful settlement. We were not received properly. Instead, French Minister Talleyrand sent three lackeys, known in history as X, Y, and Z, who solicited bribes to just set up an audience with Talleyrand. This may have been standard operating procedure in Europe, but was offensive to our American sensibilities. We refused to bribe anyone, and Pinckney and Marshall were ordered home. Hoping my presence would at least be a hedge against even worse warfare, I stayed but refused to negotiate. President John Adams eventually called me home about a year later. In the interim, I worked to expose the dishonorable position of France. This outraged President Adams' enemies, and my poor family was assaulted with insults and our home bombarded with rocks and obscenities. But President Adams later reflected on the service I had performed when he wrote, He finally saved the peace of the nation, for he alone discovered and furnished evidence that X, Y, and Z were employed by French Minister Talleyrand, and he alone brought home the direct, formal, and official assurances upon which the subsequent commission proceeded and peace was made. After I returned home, I lost several successive elections as governor. Still, the call of public service finally came again for me, and I was elected governor in 1810. During this time, I supported a very creative plan to draw the legislative lines for our state senate districts, <laughs> which had the wondrous effect of supporting my party's candidates. One political cartoonist lampooned the shape of one such creatively drawn district by calling it a salamander, and soon this imaginative drawing of districts was labeled gerrymandering, although they should have called it gerrymandering. Yep, that's me. In 1812, I was elected vice president with President James Madison. However, after suffering a massive lung hemorrhage, the Spirit of God called for me on November 23, 1814, at the age of 70. I had spent so much time and energy on public service that my fortune had evaporated and my poor wife and seven children were impoverished. Thankfully, Congress picked up the tab for my funeral. My wife was the last living widow 
of a signer of the Declaration when she passed away in 1849. John Adams and I remained friends for over 40 years. My grandson was a renowned lawyer and philanthropist in New York, and my grandson became a senator from Rhode Island. My tombstone bears one of my famous quotes, which you should follow. It is the duty of every citizen, though he may have but one day to live, to devote that day to the good of his country. Some thought me stuffy, with a bit of a stern demeanor, a bit snobbish might be a fair assessment of my demeanor. Still, I placed my life in jeopardy in supporting the American Revolution, just narrowly escaping capture by British troops. I contributed part of my fortune to the war and lost the rest through neglect because of the time and energy I put behind my public service, thus preserving my sacred honor. With great humility, I am honored to introduce Mr. Stephen Hopkins. Ho, 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 Vice President Jerry, with much gratitude. I'm indeed Stephen Hopkins, and I am <laughs> much obliged. I was hatched <laughs> on this earth on May 7th of 1707. Among my ancestors was the very first governor of Rhode Island, Benedict Arnold. No, no, silly, not that Benedict Arnold. My mother's father was one of the first Baptist ministers in the colony. I was born in an area now referred to as the Scituate, although it had been Providence when I was born there, or hatched there, as the case may be. My education came courtesy of the local common schools. Over time, I made up for it by studying the great books as well as the sciences. I read often and closely observed men, such peculiar creatures, and the natural world. I was constantly learning. I was excellent at math and a highly distinguished, if a little jolly, surveyor. I was not a particularly eloquent speaker, no, not at all, but I was clear and direct and powerful. My career began as a farmer. My first foray into public service occurred when Scituate Township split off from Providence in 1731, and I was elected as the clerk for the new township. That same year, I was elected as representative to the General Assembly. That was in 1732, and I became Speaker of the House of Representatives. I also served as Justice of the Peace and Justice of the Court of Common Pleas. And uh, believe it or not, I became Chief Judge of the Court of Common Pleas in 1733. In 1742, I moved to Providence. I decided to start a business and focused on building and fitting vessels. My new town welcomed me back to the legislature, and I continued to maintain the office of Speaker. From 1751 to 1754, I served as the Chief Justice of the Superior Court. Yes! Ha <laughs> ha! In 1754, I served as a commissioner to the Albany Convention which convened commissioners from seven colonies. The main business was attempting to secure the neutrality, if not assistance, of five nations of Native Americans and the unity of the colonies. The French and Indian War was all but upon us. We had little success, unfortunately. I worked with Benjamin Franklin to outline a plan, a kind of confederation of the colonies, which is approved by the convention, but rejected out of hand by the colonies. We were how would you put it? <laughs> we were ahead of our time. 
I was served as a chief magistrate. Think of it as the governor of Rhode Island for most of the period between 1756 and 1767. My reputation was one of a fine civic leader, adopting measures necessary to the health and peace and prosperity of our subjects. I also had a jovial side that was quite entertaining. I, like many, enjoyed my wine and liquor, especially rum. Of course, you and your fancy filters and sanitary systems don't have to worry about clean water, but but often alcohol was our only safe drink. And thank God for that! So, in addition to entertaining, I was courageous and spirited, so I gained the moniker Old Grape and Guts. Grape, of course, being the essence of wine. John Adams wrote that my humor kept us all alive, and that Hopkins never drank excess, but all he drank was immediately not only converted to wit, scent, knowledge, and good humor, but inspired us with similar qualities. Huzzah! When the Stamp Act arrived with a thunderous clap, I immediately joined the opposition. I wrote a pamphlet, The Rights of the Colonies Examined, in which I railed against the Act and similar British oppressions. I was gratified when the colonial legislature ordered that it be published in 1765. When our colony was threatened with invasion by French and Indian forces, which had conquered Fort William Henry, I assisted in raising a volunteer corps of 250 troops. We had written a pledge, which I was the first to sign, that explained that, thinking it our duty to do everything in our power for the defense of our liberties, families, and property. We are willing and have agreed to enter voluntarily into the service of our country and go in a warlike manner against the common enemy. As we were about to march to meet the enemy, we had word that they turned away and our services were no longer needed. Ha ha ha! I was appointed a delegate to the First Continental Congress and was one of the most zealous advocates for our liberties. I helped found the Providence Gazette and County Journal, a newspaper that asserted American liberties and countermanded the Loyalist press. In 1772, some of my fellow colonists torched the British tax ship, the Gatsby. What a sight that was. I was serving as Chief Justice of the colony and was instructed by imperial authorities to arrest the men and send them to England for trial. I refused. Oh, no. In 1774, I held three very important posts. Chief Justice, Representative of the Provincial Assembly, and Delegate to the Constitutional Convention. That same year, I introduced a bill to ban the importation of slaves. In my prior work, The Rights of the Colonies Examined, I plainly declared that slavery is the heaviest curse that human nature is capable of. That was no laughing matter. I introduced the act despite the fact that my own brother Isak was a slave trader. In fact, at the time, our colony had been a leading importer of slaves. No longer. On June 13, 1774, our legislature passed my act banning the slave trade. I went even farther. Many founding fathers like George Washington manumitted their enslaved persons when they passed on. But I manumitted all of my slaves 
after I introduced the bill. At least, that is what some historical sources say. Others argue that I freed just one slave, and then the rest. That is all but two upon my death, and that the final two were freed after they were twenty-one. Some say I was expelled by the Society of Friends, you know, the Quakers, because I refused to emancipate all my slaves while I was living. Others say I was expelled because I was in favor of the American Revolution, and they were pacifist. Want to know the truth about all this? <laughs> You'll have to ask me in Elysium. In 1775, I was a member of the Committee of Public Safety of Rhode Island and elected to the Second Continental Congress. <laughs> My career continued to accelerate. I was pleased to vote in favor of independence and its declaration, and I signed it. I was the second oldest signer, second only to that rascal, Benjamin Franklin. If you look closely, you can see the deleterious effects of shaking palsy that terribly affected my right hand. Oh, being right-handed, I needed to guide it with my left hand to sign. I very deliberately signed and spoke with a loud voice. My hand trembles, but my heart does not. I served in Congress through 1778 and then retired from service. I served on the committee that drafted the Articles of Confederation, and I also served on the committee that created and supervised the Continental Navy, which appointed my brother Isaac as its commander. Oh, yes. Well, you know, he was pretty good. Afterward, I served in the Rhode Island Assembly off and on through 1779. As governor, I was also the first chancellor at Brown University, which incidentally was originally established in Warren, Rhode Island in 1764. <laughs> Sorry, Judge Warren. We moved it to Providence in 1770. Want to know why? <laughs> You'll have to corner me in the ethereal city. The angel of death came for me on July 13, 1785, when I was 78 years old. I had been married twice. My first wife, Sarah, died in 1753 after 27 years of marriage. Oh, we had five sons and two daughters. Very, very fruitful indeed. In 1755, I married a widow, and in addition to what I noted previously, I helped found a public library in Providence in 1750, was a member of the American Philosophical Society, and provided significant assistance to the free schools in Providence. I was a fervent believer in our Lord and Savior and kept true to my faith. Thankfully, I was spared from military adventures and destruction of my home and properties, yet I fought to end slavery and to liberate all in America. My sacred honor was earned. Rhode Island was a small colony and state. We only had two delegates at the Second Continental Congress, and I'm pleased to introduce my fellow delegate, William Ellery. Oh, thank you, my dear Stephen Hopkins, and it is so nice to meet you. I, of course, am William Ellery. I came to this wondrous world on December 22nd, 1727, at Newport, Rhode Island. I was the second of four children. My ancestors emigrated from Bristol, England, and my father was a rich merchant and political leader. As a child, my father educated me, and thankfully, he had attended Harvard. Now, I followed in his footsteps at sixteen and left Harvard at twenty, having graduated in 1747. I took a series of jobs, including merchant, customs collector, 
clerk of the General Assembly, and clerk of the Court of the Common Pleas. And finally, around the age of forty, I returned to Newport, studied law, and began my legal practice in 1770. I was well known and built a small fortune. I was elected to the Second Continental Congress after Samuel Ward, a former governor of the state, died of smallpox. I was so pleased to support the resolution for independence, the accompanying declaration, and watched with careful discernment the men who signed it on August 2nd. I explained at the time that I was determined to see how they all looked as they signed what might be their death warrant. I placed myself besides the secretary, Charles Thompson, and eyed each closely as he affixed his name to the document. Undaunted resolution was displayed in every countenance. I served on several congressional committees with great zeal. Those included mail routes, war wounded, commercial affairs, naval affairs, and public accounts. This service took a serious toll on my financial affairs, and I could not represent clients when working in Congress. I was given the moniker Congressman on Horseback because I could not afford a carriage and often traveled between my home and Congress on horseback. Much worse, when the British occupied Newport, my home was burned down and my other property was also seriously trashed. My family had to flee the state and establish a new home in Massachusetts. In 1778, I traveled to Rhode Island with the hope of leading an attack to free our state from British occupation, which had begun in 1776. Unfortunately, the circumstances were such that we could not proceed. In 1782, I worked with New York Congressman Rufus King in an attempt to abolish slavery. I served in Congress through 1785, just missing two years, and then retired back to my home. But... Congress was not done with me, and they made me a commissioner of the Continental Loan Office, and then Rhode Island elected me as the Chief Justice of the Superior Court. Soon, however, George Washington appointed me as the customs collector for Newport, and I kept that position until I ascended to the City of God. And this was a welcome position because it stabilized my finances, which I had utterly neglected while serving in Congress. And that was on February 15th, 1820, at the ripe old age of 92. Only Charles Carroll lived to an older age. I loved the classics, especially Greek and Roman works, and I died while actually reading Cicero. Now, he's a hell of a man, you know, and you should look him up when you visit the abode of God. As a younger person, I was known to be a bit strident, but I reigned in my enthusiasm over time. I often remarked that humbly, rather than pride, becomes such creatures as we are. Now, in my personal life, I married twice, with a total of sixteen children. My descendants include William Ellery Channing, who was a theologian and famous transcendental poet who espoused Unitarianism, and author Richard Henry Dana, Jr., who was an important abolitionist author, poet, and attorney. I lost much of my fortune in the fight for freedom, and like my fellow delegate from Rhode Island, I fought to abolish slavery and liberate all of our fellow citizens from British tyranny, thereby burnishing my sacred honor. 
And now I am certainly most humbled to present Mr. Roger Sherman. William Ellery, my many thanks. I am pleased to meet you, and I am truly Roger Sherman. I was born in Newton, Massachusetts, on April 19, 1721. That is an auspicious date, as it would be the date that the shot heard round the world at Lexington and Concord would take place decades later. My family emigrated to America from Dedham, England, around 1635. My father was a modest farmer, and I was educated at a modest parochial school, which I only began attending when I was thirteen. I was trained as a cobbler, and did in fact work in manufacturing shoes until I was about twenty-two years old. I must admit, I was too enraptured with books to give the occupation my full attention. I often was, well, caught reading books instead of working. I thought that I was simply reading when work didn't require my eyes. A few years before, in 1741, when I was 19, my dear father passed on, and being the oldest son still in the household, our large household was now my responsibility. I helped ensure that my two younger brothers obtained a satisfactory education, and they in fact became men of the cloth in Connecticut, with more than a bit of fame. I decided to follow my oldest brother to New Milford, Connecticut, and sold our small farm and moved the family there. I walked the whole 150 miles, lugging my cobbler tools on my back. Soon I gave up being a cobbler and went into business with my older brother as a merchant. Just a short time later, in 1745, I became the county surveyor. You see, I had a great aptitude for mathematics. I used this talent to provide astronomical calculations for a New York City almanac for many years. I was married in 1749, but my first wife Elizabeth passed on quickly, and in 1760 I married my second wife Rebecca. Between them both, I had a total progeny of fifteen wonderful children. I never expected to be a lawyer, but when I took notes for a neighbor and approached a lawyer to help in his case, the lawyer responded that my summary was so excellent that I should become a lawyer myself. Huh. Initially, I thought this to be rather silly, but eventually it set in and I became a lawyer in 1754. Although I was self-taught, I quickly developed an excellent reputation. The year after I entered the bar, I was appointed as a Justice of the Peace for Milford. That same year, that town elected me as a representative to the colonial legislature. In 1759, I was appointed judge of the Court of Common Pleas for the county of Litchfield and gained an exemplary reputation on that court as well. I moved from Litchfield to New Haven in 1761 and public service there quickly followed. My prior positions in Litchfield revived in New Haven. I became Justice of the Peace, 
judge of the court of common pleas and representative in the colonial assembly. Plus, I became treasurer of Yale College, which kindly provided me the honorary degree of Master of the Arts. I also opened a glorious bookstore in New Haven, a great place to learn through books and intellectually-minded patrons. In 1766, my value in public service was recognized and elevated. I was elected to the upper house of the Connecticut legislature. We had this funny title. We were not senators, but assistants, and I was elevated to become a judge of the superior court. I maintained my position as assistant of the legislature for 19 years and resigned when opinions shifted on whether a person could sit both as a legislature and a judge. Originally, there was no controversy about serving as both, but in 1785 I decided it best to relinquish my legislative role. When English oppression began to raise its ugly head, I did not hesitate and attacked it. However, I was no rabid revolutionary, just a patriotic defender of our liberties. One biographer, Mr. Charles August Goodrich, explained my position and value as follows. At an early stage of the controversy between Great Britain and her American colonies, Mr. Sherman warmly espoused the cause of his country. This was to be expected of him. A man of so much integrity and consistency of character, of such firmness and solidity, would not likely to be wanting in the day of trial. It was fortunate for America that she had such men in her councils to balance and keep in check the fever spirits which, in their zeal, might have injured rather than benefited the cause. Mr. Sherman was no enthusiast, nor was he to be seduced from the path of duty by motives of worldly ambition or love of applause. He was prepared to proceed, not rashly, but with deliberate firmness, and to resist the uprighteous attempts of British Parliament to enthrall and enslave the American colonies. I knew that America must separate from England. England would never give in. Independence was the only recourse to secure our liberties. I was elected to the First Continental Congress in 1774 and was a leading figure. I remained in Congress from 1774 all the way until I met my maker in 1793, and served every year except one, and that was 1782. Over those years, I was extraordinarily busy, too hard, really, to remember and recount everything I accomplished. I served on many committees, and my keen eye and intellect honed in on details that required the focus some others less attentive might have passed over. My tireless work resulted in my reputation as one of the most influential men in Congress. For example, during the Second Continental Congress in 1776, I served on committees involving military affairs in Canada, establishing trade regulations among the states, supplying the army, paying for government expenses and offensive military operations— 
I also worked on the Articles of Confederation and, to my lasting fame, served on the committee to prepare the Declaration of Independence. I, of course, voted to approve the Resolution of Independence and the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) Now, I was no fool. I kept out of the way of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, but I was pleased to support their superb efforts in obtaining independence. During the American Revolution, I served on Connecticut's Governor's Council of Safety. I was elected mayor of New Haven in 1784 and kept that office until I met St. Michael. I was appointed to work on revising the statutes of the state with Judge Richard Law. (laughs) He certainly had the right name for his job, didn't he? And we took the opportunity to clarify and revise the laws to be better, more clear and less complex, and we modernized them in light of the great developments and momentous changes that had gripped our state. I attended the Federal Constitutional Convention that Madison and Hamilton prompted and contributed to the Constitution's development. In fact, I gave over a hundred speeches. I was critical to developing what some people called the Great Compromise and others called the Connecticut Plan, which provided a solution to representation in the Federal Constitution. Each state would have equal representation in the Senate, and the House of Representatives would be decided by population. Some even call this stroke of genius the Sherman Compromise. I then attended the state's ratifying convention, and many believe I was instrumental in ensuring its ratification by Connecticut. I was elected under the new federal constitution as a representative to the House of Representatives. When I took office as a congressman in 1789, I resigned my state judicial office. Two years later, I was elevated to the position of U.S. Senator. I was still serving in that position when the Holy Spirit finally whisked me home on July 23rd, 1793. I was 73 years of age. I'll admit, I was not the best orator. I spoke slowly and with some hesitancy. But I was known to have an abundance of common sense and a man of strong integrity. Jefferson once remarked that as a man who never said a foolish thing in his life, Senator Nathaniel Macon stated that, had more common sense than any man I ever knew. I was also known to be deeply religious, very much acquainted with the Holy Scriptures. I was known as a strict Puritan, and dressed simply, and lived life simply. Still, some said I was cunning as the devil in addressing legislative procedures. I am perhaps an inspirational example of the American dream. I began my career as a humble cobbler, the only one to sign the Declaration of Independence. In fact, I was the only person to sign the Declaration of Independence 
the Articles of Association, our first national charter, the Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution. I like to think that my humility and contributions meant my sacred honor remained intact when I met my Maker. I am pleased to introduce Mr. Samuel Huntington. Thank you, Mr. Sherman. Now I am Samuel Huntington, and most pleased to make your acquaintance. As I was brought onto this world on July 2nd, 1732, which is a most fitting date considering that that would become the anniversary of approving Richard Henry Lee's resolution for independence. Now my first home was in Wyndham, Connecticut. My father was a farmer, and my mother was quite busy raising me and my several siblings. I was the oldest of ten children, and I helped my father in his farming work, and my formal education was very limited, having attended a small common school. And when I was about sixteen, I was apprenticed as a cooper, what you might call a barrel-maker. Still, I had a love for knowledge and dedicated myself to self-education. Now, by the time I was twenty-one, most thought I was as well-trained as someone who attended a university. I turned my attention to the law and again became self-educated in that field, using the library of a lawyer in a nearby town. I started practicing law, and at the age of twenty-eight, I moved from Wyndham to Norwich, Connecticut, and became a very successful attorney. In 1764, I was elected to the colonial legislature. The next year, I was appointed as the king's attorney. In other words, I was the local attorney general and served in that capacity for several years. That same year, I was elected justice of the peace. And in 1774, I was appointed associate judge in the Superior Court and then assistant in the Council of Connecticut. When the troubles with the Empire arose, I was an adamant opponent of British tyranny. In 1774, I resigned my position as King's Attorney and instead joined those challenging English oppression. I was rewarded by being elected to the Upper House of Colonial Legislature, where I served from 1775 through 1784 and to the Second Continental Congress in 1775. I approved the Resolution of Independence and signed the Declaration of Independence and I continued to serve in Congress until 1781. Now, in 1779, John Jay was appointed as the Minister Plenipotentary to Spain, and I became the President of the Congress, which at the time was the highest office in the land. In fact, on March 1st, 1781, the Articles of Confederation took legal effect, which makes me, according to several historians, the very first President of the United States of America. Huh, that's right, because the Articles of Confederation actually created the post of the President of the United States in Congress assembled. Now, I know you may favor George Washington, but give credit where credit is due. Now, unfortunately, I had to relinquish my post in 1781 because of my health. And when I returned home to Connecticut, I continued to serve as judge and assistant to the council because, you see, my positions actually just remained vacant. I was never replaced. Now, thankfully, my beloved wife, Martha Devotion, she was the daughter of a minister after all. She nursed me back to health. And in 1782, I was re-elected to Congress. But 
a combination of bad health and judicial duties, prevented me from actually taking the seat. But the state was unrelenting and re-elected me again in 1783. I acceded and took my seat, but had to retire later that year, permanently, thank goodness. Back at home, I became the Chief Justice of the Superior Court, and in 1785, I became Lieutenant Governor, and in 1786, I became Governor outright, and I kept that office until the angels called me home. I led the ratification effort on behalf of the Federal Constitution and served as a presidential elector in 1789. And truth be told, I actually won two electoral votes in the first presidential election. I was a very strong advocate for higher education, even though I never attended a university, and received honorary degrees from Princeton, Yale, and Dartmouth, and served as an advisor to the president of Yale and as one of the original trustees of the Plainfield, Connecticut Academy. I entered the pearly gates on January 5th, 1796, when I was just 64 years of age. I was also trained as a minister as were several of my brothers, and not only did I occupy the pulpit, I was a professor of religion. After I gained my eternal reward, my work, Calvinism Improved or the Gospel Illustrated as a System of Real Grace Issuing in the Salvation of All Men, was published. I developed a reputation of quiet reserve, dignity, and possessing an even disposition. I was humble in dress and appearance, but generous with charity. I was curious, and when I decided on a path... I was dedicated to finishing the journey. I did not marry until I was 30 years of age, and I adopted two children of my brother, and one of my adopted sons became governor of Ohio. Now, as you just heard, I resigned a plum position of king's attorney because it violated my conscience and committed my entire life to public service, thereby ensuring my sacred honor. And now, I am most gratified to introduce to you Mr. William Williams. Why, thank you, Mr. Samuel Huntington. Yes, I am William Williams. You might think that is a peculiar name, but I was named after my grandfather, a minister of Hartfield, Massachusetts. Surely he was a worthy namesake. My father was a minister in Lebanon. <laughs> no, not the country, the town in Connecticut. My family originally emigrated to America in 1630 from Wales. I erupted on this earth on April 8, 1731 in Lebanon. I began attending Harvard College at the age of 16, and after I graduated and a brief respite, I began to study theology under my father's guidance. In September 1755, I served as a member of the staff of Colonel Ephraim Williams, who commanded colonial troops in battles during the French and Indian War. Oh, here I learned of the arrogant pretensions of the British. They looked down on us colonials as beneath their station, I'll tell you. Their haughtiness and disdain left a sour taste in my mouth forevermore. After my service in the military, I returned to Lebanon and determined to halt my studies in theology, and became a merchant 
<laughs> that is, I opened a store and became highly successful. In 1756, I became the town clerk. I was only 25 at the time. I'll tell you little did I know I would serve in that position for 45 years. At about this same time, I was appointed to serve in the Colonial Legislative Assembly and often served as clerk of the House as well as Speaker. In 1780, I was elected to the Upper House, and I served in that position for a total of 24 years. <laughs> I'll tell you, I barely missed any session of the legislature, except when I served as a member of the Continental Congress. When the tyrannical designs of the British became obvious, I dropped my mercantile interests, which I had developed over the last several years, and aggressively opposed, with manly firmness, the repression of the British. I was a member of the Sons of Liberty and strongly supported boycotting British goods in response to their tyrannical measures. I wrote papers opposing British oppression, which were published anonymously or under the name of my father-in-law, Governor Jonathan Trumbull. I literally put my money where my mouth was. I helped raise funds to pay for Continental forces to join the battle over Fort Ticonderoga. Early in the contest for our freedom, Continental currency had lost almost all of its value. Still, I exchanged the specie, that is, coin money, of $2,000, a huge sum back then for currency, to help pay for military services. I lost all of my money, because the Continental paper money became nearly worthless. <laughs> no matter. That was a small expense compared to the celestial spark of freedom. I often forgave debts to widows and patriots as well. I could not fathom being harsh to such worthy specimens of humanity. During the war, I closed my mercantile business so as to concentrate on the war and to avoid any potential ethical breaches that might arise from my public service and obtaining supplies for the army. I even abandoned my home and allowed French military officers to live there while they were awaiting a commission from Congress to fight. Oh, my family and I had to live in a much less comfortable abode. During the war effort, I served as selectman for Lebanon. You would likely call that position a councilman, and I was charged with obtaining military supplies. I did this for the entire American Revolution, and I supplied the army with more than a thousand blankets, bullets, and many other supplies. I served as selectman for 25 years. I was elected to the Second Continental Congress to replace the ill Oliver Wolcott, but arrived on July 28, 1776, that is, after the Resolution of Independence and Declaration of Independence had been approved. Nevertheless, I proudly signed the declaration, or <laughs> some sources say I was probably there to vote for independence. Eh, some don't bother to weigh in. Oh, curious? Ask me in the city of God. <laughs> Later that year, in a heated discussion at home with two other members of the Committee of Safety, the two doomsayers proclaimed that the British would win the war. I turned to the doomsayers and remarked in total calmness and resolution, Well, if they succeed, it is pretty evident what will be my fate. Oh, I have done much to prosecute the contest, 
and one thing I have done, which the British will never pardon, I have signed the Declaration of Independence. I shall be hung. One of them stated that they still hoped America would prevail. The other stated that he would not be hung because he had not signed the Declaration of Independence or signed anything to oppose the British. Oh, I turned to this coward and responded, Then you, sir, you deserve to be hanged for not having done your duty. This was no idle chatter, let me tell you. I definitely was willing to risk my life. I was a colonel in the militia during the War of Independence in 1781 when that damn traitor Benedict Arnold attacked New London. I rode 23 miles in just three hours to meet him in combat. A terrific pace. Oh, but too late. When I arrived, the town was already engulfed in flames. But I served in Congress from 1776 through 1778 and 1783 to 1784. I served on the Board of War. I also served in Connecticut's ratifying convention for the federal constitution and strongly supported its adoption. At the time, this was an unpopular position with my constituents, but eventually they came around to my way of thinking. Beginning in 1774, I served as judge for 34 years. I also had the honor of serving the Connecticut Assembly beginning in 1781 and retired in 1784. Oh, was it 1804? You'll have to ask me in the great beyond. I also served in the governor's council. Well, let's summarize the offices I held. Town clerk from 1752 to 1786. Selectman from 1760 to 1785. Member, clerk, and speaker of the lower house of the colonial legislature from 1755 to 1776. State legislature, 1781, 1784. Member of the Governor's Council, 1784-1803, Judge of the Wyndham County Court, 1776-1805, Probate Judge from the Wyndham District, 1775-1809, Congressman from 1776-1778, and 1783-1784. I represented Connecticut and various New England gatherings, attended the Constitutional Convention, and the Connecticut Ratifying Convention, and <laughs> I was a colonel from 1773 to 1776. I was, what would you call it? <laughs> oh, yes, I was a workaholic. I married at the age of 41 to my dearest Mary, the daughter of then-Governor Trumbull, and we had three beloved children. My greatest sorrow was that my eldest son predeceased me. Oh. The apple of my eye was gone. I never recovered from the sorrow, and my health suffered. I was heartbroken. At the age of 81, I was struck silent for four days, and then gasped to my dearly departed son to attend to me on my journey to the world of spirits. And then I cut the cruel bonds of this earth on August 2nd, 1811. I was ordained a deacon early in my life and kept the most sacred of offices until my dying day. How long was I a deacon? <laughs> a mere sixty years. My tombstone reads, A firm, steady, and ardent friend of this country, 
and in the darkest times risked his life and wealth in her defense. That was a life well lived. <laughs> I am most pleased to introduce Mr. Oliver Wolcott. Well, thank you, Mr. William Williams. And you know, Mr. Stan Lee should have made you a superhero, like Peter Parker or Stephen Strange. <laughs> yeah, but what does he know? You were definitely an authentic American superhero. And I am Oliver Walcott, and most delighted to meet you. My ancestor, Henry Walcott, was a member of a religious dissenter group called the Independents, and they were seeking religious freedom, and he emigrated to Dorchester, Massachusetts in 1630. And in 1636, with several others, he moved and settled in Windsor, Connecticut. In fact, he was among those who formed the first government in Connecticut by obtaining a charter from King Charles II. He was a member of the First General Assembly of Connecticut, and many of his descendants were prominent government and military officials. Now, my father was a major general, a judge, lieutenant governor, and governor of the colony of Connecticut. And I came upon this earth on November 20th, 1726, the 15th child and the last one of my beloved parents. I graduated from Yale College, in 1747, at the top of my class, I became a captain in the army that same year, raised a company of troops, and defended the northern English territories during the French and Indian War. Over time, I steadily was promoted, finally achieving the same rank as my father, Major General. Although I studied medicine and completed my studies under my uncle, Dr. Alexander Walcott, I never did go into practice. But I also studied the law, and around 1751, I accepted an appointment as sheriff of the newly established Litchfield County, and I held that office from 1751 to 1771. My first political office was when I became a member of the lower house of the Colonial Assembly in 1764, and I also served there from 1767 to 1768, and again in 1770, and then I served in the Upper House from 1771 to 1786. I was appointed a member of the Council of Connecticut in 1774, and I held this position until 1786, winning elections each year. I also served as the Chief Judge of the Court of Common Pleas for Litchfield County, as well as the Probate Judge for the District of Litchfield. By 1774, I had become a colonel in the militia. In 1775, the General Assembly made me the commissary for our Connecticut troops, and the First Continental Congress appointed me a commissioner for Indian affairs for the Northern Department, and I helped keep the Six Nations neutral during the American Revolution. I facilitated the resolution of difficult disputes between my home colony and Pennsylvania over the Wyoming Territory, which avoided a rift that could have threatened American unity. I performed the same service in connection with a dispute between New York and Vermont. Now, when the British began to infringe our liberties, I strongly opposed their oppressive measures— in 1776, I was elected to the Second Continental Congress 
vigorously participated in debates supporting independence and voted in favour of Richard Henry Lee's resolution for independence, as well as the Declaration of Independence, and I signed the Declaration. At least, that is what several leading historians say. Others say I was ill at home and did not participate in the debate or vote at all. (laughs) Want to know the truth? Well, ask me in the promised land. Now, one rather entertaining story about me is absolutely true. On July 9th, 1776, George Washington had the Declaration of Independence read to his troops in New York City. Uh, The soldiers and others were so excited, they dashed down to the Bowling Green in Wall Street and toppled a four-thousand-pound statue of King George III, and when it fell, it was decapitated, and his head was stuck in a pike, paraded around town, and then shipped to London. (laughs) That was great fun. But... I had a bit of a eureka moment. You see, that statue was made of lead, and we needed bullets. I had the broken figures, pieces, shipped to my home, and I encouraged my wife, children, and some other local patriotic woman to melt it down and make bullets, and they did so in the rear of my home. I helped chop the damn thing to pieces. (laughs) The effort was a bit grueling, but we made forty two thousand and eighty eight bullets <laughs> take that king george well just after approval of the declaration i was summoned home to command fourteen regiments of our state militia in october or november i returned back to the congress and that is when i signed the declaration in seventeen seventy seven i affixed my john hancock on the articles of confederation and in the summer of 1778 I participated in various military movements, then joined the Northern Army under General Gates, commanding a corps of several hundred volunteers as a brigadier general. It was then that I participated in the Saratoga Campaign, which led to the surrender of General Burgoyne's army, the pivot point of the War for Independence. And during that campaign, I brought the bullets we made at my home to that campaign. <laughs> that was truly glorious. In 1779, I commanded a division of Connecticut militia and successfully repelled a British invasion of the southwestern coast. From then until 1786, I played key roles, swapping between them several times, serving in Congress, commanding troops, and acting as a commissioner for Indian affairs. I was tasked with helping secure a peace treaty with the Six Nations, which was vital to American security. Truth be told, I negotiated peace treaties at least three separate times with Native American nations. I was a member of Congress from 1776 until 1783, except in 1779. As if that weren't enough, I attended the Connecticut Convention that ratified the United States Constitution in 1788. And in 1786, I was elected lieutenant governor and served ten consecutive one-year terms and then became governor outright when my fellow signer, Samuel Huntington, finally achieved his just reward. I was a presidential elector and voted for John Adams when he became second president of the United States. When the Grim Reaper called for me on December 1st, 1797, I was still the governor. I left as you might call it, at the top of my game. 
Now, during my lifetime, I was known to have impeccable character, a strong physique, a tall stature, and a dignified manner. Although I was persistent and held my view strongly, I was also open-minded enough to change my mind if the evidence warranted such a change. Although not a trained professional, I was known to have a keen intellect, curious, and a scholar of history and the sciences. I was deeply religious and known for my virtue and piety. My wife and I enjoyed a marriage of 40 years. We had five children. My son, Oliver, became governor of Connecticut and the second secretary of the United States Treasury. As my story relates, I was on the front lines of the American Revolution, risking my life repeatedly to give you the blessings of liberty. My sacred honor is safe. Can you say the same? Well, I am most pleased now to introduce to you Matthew Thornton. With much gratitude, Mr. Oliver Wolcott, I am Matthew Thornton, and it's quite a delight to meet you. I was born in Ireland in 1714. My Scotch-Irish parents were not able to fully practice their religious faith in Great Britain. Seeking religious freedom, my parents abandoned Ireland when I was but two or three, maybe four years old. The records are muddy, you know. You could ask them in Shangri-La if you wish. And they settled in Wickasset, Maine, and then we moved to Worcester, Massachusetts. I received a fine education and eventually studied medicine under Dr. Grout of Leicester, Massachusetts. After I completed my studies, I moved to Londonbury, New Hampshire, and began practicing medicine. Soon I had developed an excellent reputation as a physician and surgeon. I soon grew quite rich. I established a small estate. Now, I was known to be insightful in conversation with an excellent sense of humor, spinning stories of a most entertaining fashion, including many fables, <laughs> and weaving tales at night was a favorite pastime. I often mesmerized those who listened in raptured attention. I also had an acerbic, sarcastic side, which sometimes cut wounds too deeply, and I never allowed a debtor escape what was due me. And I, of course, always paid my debts timely. In 1745, during King George's War, I accompanied New Hampshire troops as surgeon in an action against the French and camped at Louisburg on the island of Cape Breton and subsequent battles. I carefully attended to the 500 soldiers under my care, and only six passed away from sickness, which was an amazing accomplishment in an era in which sickness was by far the leading cause of death in the military, even during wartime. Upon my return from the battlefield, the governor appointed me as Justice of the Peace and Colonel in the New Hampshire Militia. In 1758, I was elected to the colonial legislature. I continued to serve in the colonial legislature until 1775. 
With the passage of the Stamp Act in 1765, I became an ardent defender of colonial rights and became the chairman of the local committee of safety. In 1775, Royal Governor Wentworth fled New Hampshire, died a coward. On January 5, 1776, in light of the dissolution of royal authority in New Hampshire, the Committee of Safety declared the need to establish a new independent government for New Hampshire. The provincial convention was convened in Exeter, and I was elected the president of New Hampshire. We established a new governing charter, which was the first written constitution adopted in America independent of Great Britain. When I first became president, I addressed our fellow subjects as follows. Duty to God, to ourselves, to posterity, enforced by the cries of slaughtered innocents, have urged us to take up arms in our own defense. Such a day as this was never before known, either to us or to our fathers. You will give us leave, therefore, in whom you reposed special confidence as your representative body, to suggest a few things which call for the serious attention of everyone who has the true interest of America at heart. We would, therefore, recommend to the colony at large to cultivate Christian union, harmony, and tender affection which is the only foundation upon which our invaluable privileges can rest with any security, or our public measures be pursued with the least prospect of success. We seriously recommend the practice of that purse and undefiled religion which embalmed the memory of our pious ancestors, as that along upon which we can build a solid hope and confidence in the divine protection and favor, without whose blessings all the measures of safety we have, or can propose, will end in our shame and disappointment. In 1776, I was also appointed Chief Justice of the Court of Common Pleas, and then promoted to the Judge of the Superior Court of New Hampshire. I remained in that office until 1782. Now, I know that was a tremendous amount of information. So, to summarize, before I served in the Second Continental Congress, I was the President of the Provincial Assembly, President of the Revolutionary Constitutional Convention, Chairman of the Council of Safety, State Senator, State Representative, Judge, and Speaker of the House. In 1776, I was elected to the Second Continental Congress, but I did not take office until November 4, 1776, so I did not participate in the debate or approval of the Declaration of Independence. Nevertheless, I signed the engrossed final document in November 1776. I was hardly alone. Benjamin Rush, George Clymer, James Wilson, George Ross, and George Taylor all signed it without voting for it. I was re-elected to Congress for another year. 
If you look closely at the document, you will see that I am the last signature on the document in the far right column. The other delegates from my state had already signed it, and there was no space for me to sign next to their names. I also served as a member of the general court, senator in the state legislature from 1784 to 1787, and member of the executive council in 1785 as second counselor. My beautiful wife died in December 1786, as did my son Andrew in 1787, and I withdrew from public life. I purchased a farm in 1789 or 1790 and farmed the land as well as continued to practice medicine. I also operated a ferry across the Merrimack River. In my elder years, I wrote a discourse entitled Paradise Lost or and the origin of evil called sin examined or how it ever did or ever can come to pass that a creature should or could do anything unfit or improper for that creature to do or that a creature should or could omit or leave undone what that creature ought to have done, or was fit and proper for that creature to do, or how it ever was, or can be possible, for a creature to displease the Creator in thought, word, or action. (laughs) I thought that was a snappy, quick title, but it was never published. In 1800, I survived a whooping cough attack, but the Grim Reaper finally placed his grip on me on June 24th, 1803, when I was 89 years old. Inscribed on my gravestone is the simple but accurate slogan, An Honest Man. My lovely wife Hannah and I had five children. As an honest man, I defended our liberties and freedom, opposed British oppression, and preserved my sacred honor. As the last signer in this podcast series, I bid you adieu on behalf of us all. Some key takeaways from this episode. Beginning on August 2nd, 1776, and for a significant period afterwards, 56 delegates to Congress signed the Declaration. Among those delegates were John Adams, Robert Treat Payne, Eldridge Jerry, Stephen Hopkins, William Ellery, Roger Sherman, Samuel Huntington, William Williams, Oliver Wolcott, and Matthew Thornton. To fulfill the first principles of free and just government and achieve independence, the signers of the Declaration of Independence mutually pledged to each other and the new nation their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. Each signer faced different challenges and sacrifices, but they all worked to ensure that we, we, could preserve our liberties, and we are the heirs of that commitment and sacrifice. Live up to it. Please join us next time when we move past the Declaration of Independence and set the stage for the Constitution. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two terrific patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skinechny, who is our sound designer and the host of his own unique podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard, and bombastic Brent Bassett, proud father, I mean actually proud father, of an amazing young patriot and several patriotic hounds. 
This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about our first principles, key documents, and speeches, patriots, and flags. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at PatriotWeek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.